Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, Rick here from the Mobile Hunter Podcast, and I'm here to tell you about one of our sponsors, Saddies LLC, Custom Ammunition and Gunworks. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads that have been putting down deer, waterfowl, and turkey all year long. The Saddies Fatty, the turkey load that we use, can stop a bird dead in its tracks. Check them out at saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com. Or on Facebook at Saddies LLC. And tell them the Mobile Hunter Podcast sent you. Welcome to the Mobile Hunter Podcast. Our mission is simple. We want to help you become a better hunter. We believe that mobility kills and efficiency will set you free. Welcome to the Mobile Hunter Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Leppert. Hope you all are doing well tonight. Uh, tonight, my co-host is Josh Luck. Josh, how you doing? Doing pretty well. And uh, we are joined by none other than the blonde Tom Cruise, Jacob Sklenner. Jacob, how are you, dude? I'm I'm pretty good. I'm excited to be interrogated by you guys. <laughs> the interrogation begins now. So, guys, um, had a gentleman write in to us tonight, or well, actually, it was earlier in the day, and uh, we were kind of chatting back and forth a little bit, and he requested a little nerd sesh. Um, Dusty White wanted us to do a kind of in-depth podcast on thermals and uh how we play the wind and scent control and you know hunting just off wind and all that so um we're gonna dive into it so first and foremost i figure we would start with the importance of all this and why we even care so to start things off there's there's an i'm gonna reference another podcast because it's still in my opinion the greatest podcast episode that's ever been done. Um, yeah. I, I think it it's changed the way that I hunt and a lot of other people hunt. If you haven't listened to it, go on Spotify to um, the Southern Outdoorsman and just type in the truth about scent in the search bar. And it'll be with Tom Brownlee. That guy is very well educated on all things uh scent related he is a world-renowned canine handler trained uh tracking dogs to track poachers in other countries and um drug dogs and everything so we've we'll probably reference that episode quite a bit i feel like it's worth noting um and i've actually had the very high privilege in my opinion to have about an hour conversation with that guy and we just nerded the hell out, and it was phenomenal. So um, with that being said, a deer has just under 
300 million olfactory scent receptors. A dog, I believe, has 220 million. And while some dogs are a little better than others at tracking, according to Tom, they're pretty much all the same for the most part. Um, none, you know, they don't really, there isn't one with like a way more powerful nose for mm. the most part. You know, the majority of the dogs that are used for tracking anyway are, you know, good at it. So um, his contention, though, is that a dog kind of smells a little differently than a deer in the sense that a dog, you know, scent trails, scent checks something for food, a treat. You know, they're generally not like searching out danger, even though, you know, we've seen coyotes freak out, Um, you know, a deer kind of operates just a little differently now they're still trying to smell for food and everything but they're just they're a little different um so with that being said i'm gonna let jacob kind of go into this a little bit and then we're gonna just kind of play off of each other and we'll just kind of take turns giving some thoughts for the beginning of this and then we'll kind of dive into it yeah um yeah so a lot of the the stuff i do know about this is done through my own research and also of course that episode 350 of the southern outdoorsman with tom brownlee is fantastic chris i think before we even really knew each other we wholeheartedly agreed on facebook that that might have been the best piece of audio ever put into recording yes with the exception of maybe some hendrix or something like that <laughs> but um so yeah i mean so just to start that that number 300 million OSNs, olfactory sensory neurons or receptors, whatever you call them, um, being more than a dog's is already really impressive. You know, is it 80 million more than a dog's? But they're also, I believe, more effective. He was talking about in that podcast, too, that they operate a little bit differently in a way that actually gives a deer more of an advantage. Um, and I can't speak to that science as much, but just to put into perspective, kind of, like it's it's very unfathomable for humans to understand how deer smell but just to give a tiny fraction of an analogy for that um and, and trying to dumb it down as much as possible so people can can see the whole picture here is uh if you can imagine like a bowl of chili and i know chris you definitely know what a bowl of chili is. <laughs> we had to make a chili I know. Because we're so, gonna get a hey, message. We gotta make Dakota. this. We gotta make it personal so you can relate. But <laughs> just so everyone can imagine a bowl of chili. Okay, whatever kind of chili you make. Now, when we smell chili, we might maybe smell if there's tomato sauce and then what kind of meat, and that's probably the extent of our own smell. Um, what a deer would smell is it would smell the tomato sauce, how long you cooked it. It would smell what type of meat, how long that meat was cooked. It would smell every individual seasoning separately and instantly it would smell every little piece of that chili separately and easily recognize all of it age all of it and probably know the last person that touched that chili or breathed on it and instantly it just doesn't take it doesn't take effort for them and it's kind of similar to the way that we see color in something else maybe a deer or dog you know a deer sees slightly different vision but we see color and they see black and white like I'm looking at Chris's hat right now and I can see the brown, I can see the tan, I can see the green of his camo, I can see the black label and the deer's outline, and I can see the little bit of orange on his microphone and everything like that. Now, that doesn't take me any effort. I don't have to think about that. I don't have to sort through those colors. I'm just envisioning it. That's how my senses work. So with a deer, you know, 
seeing black and white, it may be a little bit harder for them to differentiate between color. And that's why they see edge vision quite a bit. So that's like a, just a tiny little fraction of how a deer smells. They can just, the way that we see and how we have a bit of an advantage in that, if you multiplied that literally by factors of hundreds of thousands and uh, tried to apply that to scent, which again, not very fathomable, but just the ability to instantaneously sort between all the different elements they have and age it is, is what I find so impressive with deer. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of immediately dispels the age old cover scent myth. Um, and I believe there are things that are less alarming scent than others. And I think that's probably where the theory derives from. But when you put like when you put, let's say, pine or whatever, you blend up some pine and you put it on you or you put your clothes in pine, they smell your clothes and pine. Mm -hmm. They They smell how long that's been sitting on there and everything too. It, when you spray something on yourself to an extent, you know, that I'm not going to get into the science of carbon and, and the surface area molecules and things like that, but basically they're going to smell what you sprayed on yourself and you. It's, it's just kind of how it works. Anytime there's oxygen present, it will hold scent. That's, that's just how it works. Water is an element within, I mean, you have H2O makes up the air. There's nitrogen there's uh there's oxygen in the air it will hold moisture and it will hold scent if it can hold moisture it does hold scent so unless you can completely eliminate all moisture from coming out of your mouth and you will die then you won't eliminate the scent that you produce as a human it's just it's an unfortunate fact and now that's the scent elimination i won't kind of go into reduction but i think that's a, a very important thing to kind of grasp right away is that it, it is something that is it's just certainly going to impact you. Another thing that um, I don't think Tom really brought up actually in that podcast that I found interesting is the way that dogs can tell time. And so dogs, when you are coming home, it's crazy. They know when you're about to come home. They know when they should be fed. The way that dogs track time is by the amount of scent that you leave remaining in the room. So they can tell to the minute when they should be fed or when they get medicine or something like that, just based on the amount of scent that they detect present in the room. And that can happen over periods of weeks. And so it's really interesting to think about that from a deer's perspective of the scent that you're leaving. Um, and another, just, just to establish one more thing to just these, these uh, uh, important We can go on. That, you, you say your piece. Cause mm -hmm. I, I, these are just the things that I consider. Um, when I'm leaving scent in the woods and when I'm when I'm setting up. Um, the other thing, too, is people think about, you know, if you could completely eliminate scent and you use a mouth cover or something like that, and in your mind that completely eliminates scent, let's say your presence just, there's absolutely nothing coming off of you as impossible it is. is let's, let's just say that's true. When you step on dry concrete or just the driest substance you can imagine, you stir up microorganisms. And those microorganisms, especially on vegetation and things like that, um, are detectable by deer up to hours afterward. And let's say you bend over a grass or you break a branch. You know, breaking a branch is kind of an extreme example, although a lot of guys do that every single time they go in. Mm -hmm. But you fold over any kind of plant matter, you stir up any kind of ground. Um, you are stirring up lots of microorganisms, but if you damage a plant, it's causing the release of norepinephrine. And so when you think about when you mow your lawn, 
and it smells cool. It's that fresh cut grass smell that everybody loves. That's actually the grass just crying out for help. It's saying, help, my head's been cut off, I'm injured. And it's, it's a natural thing that every organism gives out when they're trying to heal. That's why a group of lions can all cue on one single gazelle or zebra in a giant herd. It's not that they know just, they see the old weak one because that's how our minds operate. We see it and then we can identify it. They can smell the norepinephrine that's that animal's giving out because it's trying to heal. And, and that scent on plants can last months if you just fresh cut a limb, yep. i.e. why deer rub on certain trees because their scent lasts longer. That mm -hmm. healing scent of it in the tree lasts longer. And that's why they stir up fresh dirt a lot of the times and refresh things after it rains. It's typically because there's more moisture content in the soil. It's much easier to smell something and they know their scent's going to last longer where most people think it washes out. It takes a ridiculous amount of water. So My I guess branch is broken a lot of times. Yep. Yeah. And so it, it, and that's why you see stuff go dead when the vegetation goes dead, it doesn't really hold their scent. There's nothing to mix in. And that norepinephrine actually carries a lot further than sometimes what a gland might carry, uh, especially like a forehead. But again, that's also how track tracking dogs work. When, when you shoot a deer, it's actually easier to track that deer when it's gut shot because it knows it's hurt. It's giving off that distress signal of norepinephrine through its interdigital gland between its two hooves, between the toes of its hooves or its digits. Um, and, and that's what the dog's actually tracking. And that's very unique to that deer because usually when you shoot a deer, there's not 50 running around that are injured and giving off that same scent. Right. And so I guess that's a lot of just me spitting facts at you, but really the way that that plays in is, okay, maybe you're able, you're really not able to cover up your own scent because you're just adding one more little aspect to that picture that a deer can already decipher immediately. Um, when you're walking in, you're going to be damaging vegetation to some extent. So that walking trail is extremely crucial. And, and really just, you know, there are some efforts that are actually futile and, and your scent will last a time in the woods. And um, we're, we're going to talk a lot about thermals on this episode. And so that's a vehicle to carry your scent and to distribute it. But I just think that this is kind of like establishing why this is such an important topic. Um, yeah. And these are things that I'm not coming up with. This is not an opinion. This is just scientifically proven fact. Um, I don't like when people are like, I feel this way about scent control. I feel this way about that. Um, there is room for opinion and everything, but these are things that are like Tom said, they hold, they hold up in court. You know, yeah. you have to be able to prove someone's guilt based on the ability of a dog. And if that dog can sense your presence, there is established scientific fact on something that is far less capable of smelling you than a deer and, and it will hold up and you will go to jail for it. So yep. there are things that we need to just kind of accept. Now, again, scent reduction, don't want to trigger everyone here, but. No, well, I, I think we do dive into that towards the end. And yeah. it's funny, you, you talked about the dog. My wife had a pug, like literally if there was ever a breed of dog that I would think incapable of life it's that thing and i'm telling you old rascal he would walk over to the door every day a few minutes before erica got home and at first i just kind of looked at him and laughed and then all of a sudden i said all these people say dogs can't tell time i think they're full of shit because right. he walks over there at the same time 
every single day, three feet in front of the floor, uh, the door, and stares up at the door until she walks through. And like, he knows. I mean, we all know the dog knows before you ever do. So, and if if that physically inferior animal can do that, what can a deer do? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, think how archaic our scent is. That like we we in our as far as our senses go now, our, our brain capabilities fantastic. But as far as our senses go, like we terrible. literally had to produce this super high tech thing to read a time on it and keep track of it. And it's this giant complex thing, the world time and all that, like animals just come out of the womb, smelling it, like, and understanding it. And that is the most simple facet of their sense of smell. And so how hard it would be to wrap your mind around how advanced that sense really is and how much of an advantage it really is. Just literally think about all the efforts that humans do to take care of time and understand it. And animals just come out knowing it because of smell. Yeah. I mean, how many more capabilities they have that we don't understand? I think that you could relate it like you did to vision. I think that you could probably say that their smell would be like us looking up into the sky and seeing like what the Hubble telescope could show you or something like that. Like he's Tom was talking in that podcast about how they need less than 10 molecules. Ever seen a molecule? You know what I mean? Yeah. They were saying that a dog (laughs) with absolute ease can smell a teaspoon of salt in the size of two Olympic swimming pools. Like, yeah, it's just absurd. So he started diving in. I hate to like keep going here, but we have to, because this is nerd sesh one one Right. He said, I I brought up um, something that I heard uh, Dan talk about before where they train cadaver dogs and they'll cut like the tip of a pinky off and sink it in three meters of water. And if the dog doesn't hit on it, they don't pass. Right. He Mm -hmm. said it wouldn't matter if that water was a hundred feet deep because the way that scent moves through the water, it, it just, you know, with the oxygen, of course it Mm -hmm. comes up to the top with the gases, it comes up to the top. So no matter how deep it is, you can't escape it. So here I am walking through the water thinking, well, maybe, maybe we'll cover our tracks a little bit. And I still wonder, like, if you had the ocean or a river, something that changes the landscape a lot. Tide Mm -hmm. comes in and out, rivers, you know, come up and down. and Moving water. Yeah, moving water, not the stagnant stuff. So I just, uh, you know, where the, the, the landscape of it or whatever changes the makeup. So, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, deer can smell, they can identify a scent with, I think it was like seven molecules that they needed to identify a scent. And I wanted to say, what was it? I don't know if it was the deer or the bears, because bears have 600 million. Black bears, yeah, black bears are the best smellers pretty much, period. And he said, you can break it down to where they can smell like 0.09 parts per trillion or something. Like you can, And he says, he literally says this, you can't even wrap your mind around that. Like the number, a trillion, but it's 0.09 parts per trillion like that's insane so now 
we're gonna let Josh talk for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I was just enjoying listening. I like it these is, nerd sessions. It's it hard to, yeah, it's hard to as like a host or co-host just like start talking because you're like, oh no, keep going. I want to listen. I want to learn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I definitely agree with you know both your points. And when I kind of started my journey, just like thinking differently and paying attention to more things back in like 2019, and starting to, I mean, even in 2019, I still use some cover scent. I'm not afraid to admit that when I grew up, that was just what you did, right? That was, that was part of it. You went out to the shed or garage, put your hunting clothes on, sprayed down with your cover scent and then, you know, off to the woods you go. And then as I started, you know, 2019, I really just started playing the wind more. Right. Um, and then I started diving into, to scent and how that works. And like you said, Jacob, how kind of futile that can be. Uh, once you kind of learn everything and then it's like, oh, like, what am I doing? Wasting my time. And I think it's important to just have a really good understanding of how a deer's, how, 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 the, how their nose works. Uh, because that kind of plays a role into, well, honestly, I think, I feel like it plays a role into quite a bit. Um, so nowadays when I'm have, when I have that in mind, I kind of know, um, it's it's almost like time management. I know where to put my efforts and to um, where I really need to focus my time and energy on certain things and where I can, you know, not focus time and energy on other things. Because there, there are guys that go to extremes and spend tons of time on, like, <laughs> scent control and all this other stuff. And I'm like, man, if you just focus that energy on, like, your access, you know, where to hang your stand, how high and all that stuff, like that's going to be way more effective at you killing that buck than what you're doing with all these hours. And like, I don't want to do that stuff. So it just, it goes into all aspects. I think of hunting, just having a good basic understanding of that goes a long way. And I think once I started paying attention and learning about that is when I started getting more and more success, more consistent success. Yep. And, I kind of want to hit on another thing. So there's a lot of people that are pro scent control and they come up with all these times that it's worked. Uh, I honestly think that if you could prove that the deer was in fact downwind, the thermals, whatever was carrying your scent right to them. I think that a, I want to know if it's a doe, a fawn, a very immature buck versus a mature buck, because I think those two classes of animal tolerate things differently. But I also think, uh, and I, I think that they react differently as well. Um, but I also want to say that I've watched it with my own eyes multiple times where a deer, I could prove that it was downwind of me. My thermals were going to him. My wind was, everything was in that deer's favor. And he never even cared that I was there. And I was, I had just kayaked in a long way, climbed up in 80 degree weather, still covered in sweat kind of thing. And I believe that deer sometimes struggle when they're, you know, one of their senses is heat up. I believe the others tend to fail. So like, for example, when a buck comes through trotting nose to ground, he's 
trying like hell to pick her up, can't figure out where she went, whatever the case is. You could scream at that deer and it never even know you were there. And, you know, a lot of us have done it. You got to literally scream bloody murder and sometimes they still don't even stop. Um, I've seen where bucks are nose to ground and guns go off and they don't even stop. They don't care. Um, and then I've seen this buck I'm talking about where he had everything in his advantage and he was staring at the primary food source he was headed to like very, very intently. He was anxious about showing up there much like a zebra at a waterhole. And so I believe that that's why he didn't smell me. It's the only logical thing because I was not practicing anything other than sitting in a tree covered in sweat and he had every advantage and never even paid attention. So just kind of something to talk about, but, uh, I do want to not to harp on the scent control thing, but just one other thing I wanted to point it out. Um, just cause just from all my schooling stuff, going over like research articles and looking all that, uh, looking over all that stuff. And I know Jacob, you probably did the same thing in college, like with research and that, like any of these companies that do scent control, like where's the data, where's the research? It's all like this anecdotal stuff, but like really, if you wanted to know what would, what they would do or what they should do is have like these randomized control trials, right? Like you're going to have, a controlled environment where, you know, humidity is controlled, where, you know, there's no wind no thermals or anything like that. Or if there is, it's very consistent in a controlled environment and you'd have some way to measure um, your actual like scent molecules and that, but you know, none of them do that. So you're just going off by, Oh, he said this. So most of the time, yeah. There's been a few like just just trials, kind of not not scientific controlled trials like like you're talking about, Josh. But obviously, a lot of people know about MythBusters. Put out episodes on it. Um, I think those are still available in archives. I know they got taken down online because of backlash from hunters, ironically. Um, and so th that's an interesting take on it. There's a, a few, I'm sure, pretty imperfect YouTube videos. And I think, Chris, what you said, too, is very important as well. There's there's nuance. There's a lot of things that we don't understand as well beyond scent, like a deer's personality. I mean, you hear MSU Deer Lab. They have all sorts of different categorizations of deer, and it's very hard for them to identify a personality that repeats even in a deer. Um, they try to put classifications on it, and that's just with travel. So just the way that they respond is so different depending on the region you're in depending mm -hmm. on even down to the very specific deer and what happened to them that day or what their motivations are on that day sure so the way i think about it is um there there's a difference so you should always do something that brings you some more confidence and you believe boost your odds all of our stuff with tactics everything is in an effort to boost our odds that a deer is going to be there when we're hunting them in that spot and so if, if that looks like to you, like the time and money and effort that it takes to do scent control and it gives you confidence, that's probably what, in your opinion, you should do. And, you know, if if you care about that anecdotal evidence, evidence a lot more than what has been scientifically proven, it, who am I to say that you're wrong? It's your prerogative, your money, your sport. 
that's what's so cool about hunting. Everyone can do it the way they want to, as long as it's legal. And buying a bunch of scent control products is sure as hell legal. So have fun doing that. That's fine. And and I think that if you believe on this side, I, I don't want to say this side, but if you believe that you should control your scent, this might be a valuable conversation forthcoming for you to listen to because um, just controlling the direction that it goes, being aware of the impact you leave, I think is something that helps people, whether you do practice scent control or not. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, that is a very good point, I feel. So if for those individuals that do believe and and want to use the scent control products, like Jacob said, that's fine. That's your prerogative. But I do feel like you should have a good understanding of how to control your scent and like you said, the direction, all that, what we're going to get into with like thermals and wind and all that. Yeah. Uh, so this is still a conversation worth listening to because with, you know, with all of your regimen, I know some, some guys will make the argument like, oh, I don't have to pay attention to that because I do all this. I'm, I'm going to disagree. Even if you do all that, if you want to be extra, if you want to be that guy that goes the extra mile, you should also know this stuff as far as how to control it and push it in a certain direction and that, because that'll just up your odds even more right yep i agree so meat potatoes <laughs> yeah yeah i'm i'm ready so back when i had my first successful year deer hunting on public land what i'd call a controlled successful year not luck um i started with water access and i quickly learned why water access was phenomenal. Um, I've talked about this a lot with Josh and Jacob Emery and lots of people, Parker, McDonald, Jacob Myers, list goes on, right? When you start using lakes, rivers, streams, whatever, I haven't used the ocean yet, but I'm sure it'll happen. Um, you start popping milkweed and you notice what's happening. You notice that when the water goes around the bend, that milkweed will go right with the water. And then when you watch when it comes around, the water swirls and then slows down and then flows flows out, right? Keeps going downstream. Well, the milkweed does the same thing. And you quickly realize why the hell the deer are doing what they're doing. They're, they're not crossing somewhere for, they're not, they're generally not doing most things for any other reason that it's in their favor. I, I really believe that. So I think for me, and I explained this to a gentleman the other day because he was trying to get me to promote a scent killer for him. And I told him, I'm like, man, listen, if you can show me one scientific fact that proves it other than your feelings and beliefs. I would use it in a heartbeat because I would destroy deer if I could eliminate my scent. There's no, I have zero doubt in my mind that it would be less than fair for a wild animal if I could keep them from smelling me. It would not be fair. I'll say that anytime. So, and that goes for a lot of people that I know. So, I was explaining to him because he said, he's like, what do you, what do you do about scent then? I said, well, I study thermals a lot anywhere I am. I've, I've gotten to the point now that I'm worried more about that than anything else. So 
when Josh and I are out scouting together, we're looking at tiny little creeks and gullies and drainage ditches. Some of these little old creeks that may, you know, like a, a mountain gully where in the spring there'll be a tiny trickling stream coming out. But the rest of the time, you might find a puddle here or there, and that's about it. You get into that ditch, and you feel a slight breeze coming. It's shaded, and then it has terrain that is funneling the thermals through it. And one thing I, I personally want to hit on that I learned a little bit from Jake Bush and just a lot from paying attention and always trying to understand why um, steep and deep will help you creep. So essentially, the steeper the terrain, the hills, and the deeper the ditch, canyon, whatever you got, a creek, a river, whatever it is, the better it's going to push your thermals and control them. There's been multiple times where I've literally sat three feet, over, like half of my body is sticking out of the creek and the other half is not. It's like down below the the ground level of the creek, I'd call it. Like, it, you know, I'm kind of halfway up above the bank of it, so to speak, if that makes sense. And if I if I stand three feet higher, my scent is going north. But because I'm where I'm at, my scent is all traveling south, if that makes sense in people's minds. So for me, I like terrain. It helps... I, I believe that it not only helps me keep my scent and control my scent from getting to certain spots where I think deer are, and just as importantly, where they're going to travel. And you also have to think about how you walked in there, because if you're not controlling the way that ground scent, rubber boots or not, is going to be carried then you're toast before you even know what's going on, before the deer even showed. Um, and to kind of kind of further my point a little bit, um, I think that lost my train of thought here. So the higher you get up, you know, the bigger your cone's going to be, the more it's going to spread out. The lower you are, the less it's going to spread out. I'll, obviously, you know, if we have like a perfect environment, things happen. Uh, you know, when wind comes into play, I personally believe that mature bucks and the majority of deer in general move based on thermals and not as much on wind direction. Now, I would also argue that I'm seeing this a lot where there's plenty of terrain, but I have heard guys kind of sort of um, hint around about it. Some of them not even knowing what they're saying, and I'm like, oh, light bulbs are exploding in my head. Uh, the other thing I would like to offer before I turn over the mic to Josh here is that I always hear guys in different, um, in like different regions, terrains, whatever you want to call it, let's say swamp versus mountains, hills, etc. A lot of guys will be like, well, I'm in, you know, hill country. They're, the winds are swirling. I hunt swamps. The, the, you know, we don't have anything to funnel the, the, the thermals or whatever. 
I truly believe wind is swirling just about every damn where you go. You're going to run into that. I think there are ways to play it for you. And I absolutely believe 100% that a buck will figure out his best advantage to bed so that you cannot get to him. And sometimes I do think that that might be, um, you know, the scent might be sort of like matched with sight, uh, you know, as like the primary sense, say for instance, in cattails, for example, maybe wind, uh, wind to face or, or wind to back, however it would work for him. And then, you know, his ears, obviously you can hear those freaking cattails. I think, was it you saying that like when you're standing up, you hear all the cattails like rattling and then you like kneel down and it's quiet as hell. Something along those lines. Yeah. I, I, I think you might be quoting someone else, but I can definitely concur with that. Okay. Um, I, I might've mentioned it. Um, okay. but that's definitely a thing. I know that one thing that we talked about is when you recede back into the cattails after a day of hunting, especially in the early season, you realize how freaking cold they are and, and how much the thermals do actually suck and pool and make it pretty cold in there. But yeah, a huge thing with cattails is really how incredibly loud they are. I mean, even out scouting today, I was just walking my merry way on some, some ice really. And I didn't think I was being very loud and I stopped and all of a sudden I could just hear deer exploding within 50 yards to hundred yards of me. And um, they do eat up a lot of the sound in close proximity, but if you're elevated above them, gosh, they're loud. Like it's, it's incredibly loud. Yeah. Um, and, and being on a root ball and being on top of ice with my head over dead cattails made that extremely apparent. Yeah. Um, I think something you touched on that was, and I'll, and I'll be extremely brief with this. Something you touched on that's really, really cool, um, Chris, is when you're relating streams to air currents. And if you were to trap amount of air in a container and you make it more and more and more and more and more dense, it would become water. Like if you eventually create, and it's it's literally the way that water flows is extraordinarily similar, if not the exact same as the way air flows, because they're both fluids. And learning in fluid dynamics, if we're going to define air currents and thermals, you can literally think of air if you were to be imposing a stream into the air. Like it's literally an airstream. You can see how when a leaf flows behind an eddy with a rock, it swirls back behind yes. it. Little tiny micro instances of that are happening behind every single tree, even. Yep. That's why sometimes when you're trying to drop your milkweed right next to your tree, you're like, what the hell? It's not going anywhere. I can feel the wind, though. It's because you're getting caught in that little bit of a eddy of, of it. And um, the way that this kind of relates to, I guess, thermals is it, this was, again, we're nerding out here. So this is acceptable, I guess. But um, <laughs> absolutely in, in college, uh, studying to be an ME, I took thermodynamics and I took fluid dynamics. Oh. So fluid dynamics and fluid mechanics are awesome because they teach you a lot of the way of airflow and heat transfer and things like that. And you're like, holy crap, that actually applies to hunting. And so you kind of get interested in the class eventually. And so one thing to note, and this may be a little nerdy for, for some viewers preference here, but what what's going on with thermals is it's actually a, a buoyancy effect. So if you picture a ship floating on the sea, that ship is displacing more water than its weight is carrying it down. So that makes it buoyant, that makes it float on top of the water. So when you have 
oil and water, for instance, those molecules are larger, they're less dense and they float. So molecules of larger substances typically float. So if we were to go to hot air versus cold air, you're working with the same medium, but you're just defining it by hot and cold. Hot air is larger than cold air, it is expanded. So as 99% of molecules heat, they also expand. And um, that's what's happening with thermals. It's literally a molecule in a sea of itself becoming more buoyant, becoming larger because it's warmer and floating to the top. Thermals are, are literally just the same thing as a buoy being released from sea. So that's a, an effective way to think of it. And if you're gonna get a little more advanced and you wanna look up how hot to cold transfers, how heat actually transfers, there is equilibrium is when everything is the same. Everything wants to constantly be getting to the same temperature. So the thing that's the majority will try to override the minority until everything is equal. So if you have a lot of really hot stuff and a single ice cube, it's gonna melt that ice cube until the ice cube is the same temperature as the environment around it. So when you have the sun hitting a ridge and it's not hitting a very small part of that ridge, heat is going to continually flow to that small part of the ridge until it's equal. In other words, molecules on that part that's heating up are going to continue to get bigger and float until everything is equal and the movement stops. So that's why we see thermals is there's something that is colder. It is no longer in the majority. Heat is transferring to it, causing those molecules to rise until everything is equal and they become stagnant. So that's that's just a little bit of like nerdy science behind thermals. It's it's obviously it's not something we're anecdotally observing. It's that we we have that too, but it's also something that you can back with science. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good point, Jacob. That's that's actually kind of what and I want what I wanted to go back to um, just to give our listeners because I don't want to leave anyone out that's. Uh, maybe a new listener and are new to thermals and trying to understand that. So I kind of want to preface some of the stuff that Chris was saying so that some of the listeners have a really good understanding and then dive into the terrain and stuff like that. So I'm going to play it this way. I'm going to ask you two a couple questions and then just give me the answer and um, we'll, we'll go from there. And Jacob, you, you already hit on some of this with the uh, fluid dynamics and thermodynamics. And that's, how I think of thermals is I basically just imagine like water and um, like, okay, how would water flow around here? And then I also need an understanding of hot versus cold and how air rises, you know, with that or falls. Um, so I'm going to start off with a very simple question. What is a thermal for someone that doesn't know? I would call it an air current to me. It's, literally a breeze you didn't know about basically um and there are different ones everywhere you go which is real like it's very overwhelming and in fact i'll tell a minor story josh and i are out in hill country and i was like hey josh go drop milkweed over there and like we kept doing this and finally i was like I'm going to be honest. I don't know where the hell we should hunt, man. Like <laughs> the wind is everywhere. Yeah. And so, but we didn't understand. It's like that everywhere. Literally swamp. Okay. Swirling winds, hills, swirling winds, mountains, 
swirling winds. It's doing the same thing everywhere in a different way. You just have to figure out how you can combat that. So you could be walking through the woods and you could see a drainage ditch. It's literally a foot and a half deep, two feet deep. And you could walk in that drainage ditch or what I would do would be crawl up it. And you could have, if that's shaded, you are likely going to have like a complete advantage on the deer. It's not going to be um, super powerful, but it could be just enough. And I'm not saying it'll be every time um, because, you know, it's it's different everywhere you go, right? Like if, if there's hot sunlight right next to you beaming down, then that could screw you big time. So um, when you look at another example I'll give is like, you ever notice that deer always enter a field from like a sunken area? They come up from the sunken ditch and then filter out. They checked the entire cornfield before they even touched it. And they knew, okay, we're fine. You know, for the most part, like if you just got there, cool, you're good for now. <laughs> so that that's how I would describe them. An air current that you basically have to discover and understand how it works in those different areas. Jacob, how would you describe a thermal? So I... Are you going to give me the thermodynamics definition? No, no I'm going to try to be <laughs> as, as clean and brief as possible. Um, I think that air currents are a little bit different than thermals because air currents are influenced by terrain. Um, if I were to find strictly what a thermal is in a thermal alone, which I think air currents are inc incredibly valuable to pay attention to, you have to pay attention to them, especially when there's terrain mixed in. He's trying to make me feel better about myself for sounding no, stupid. No, no, no. I think, <laughs> I think that a thermal is a niche piece of the wind puzzle that you, you need to understand as well. But I would say a thermal is an air current that is caused by a difference in temperature. Okay. So that yeah. if I had to make a brief definition, and I think Chris, everything you're saying with air currents is a hundred percent right. Mm -hmm. I think some of the examples you give are exactly thermal oriented. Yeah. And some of I them didn't use are, the right term. <laughs> like a ditch, like a ditch, even if it's not shaded, will influence the way that wind travels. Yeah. But I think that's an air current that's influenced by terrain and not necessarily a difference but for the sake of simplicity many guys call all of that thermals yes i would uh, i'd agree with both of you in its simplest terms i think of it as an air current that is um how'd you put it jacob that that is influenced by a difference in, or caused yes. by a difference in temperature yes caused by a difference in temperature now you already kind of hit on uh, the heat transfer in that, but in its simplest terms, hot versus cold, how will your scent travel um, with those? So the most, so cold, cold things fall, hot things rise. That's, that's the most simple you can get. Mm -hmm. The way that that impacts in hunting is typically at night, everything's cold and then everything starts to get warm. So, and at night, everything starts cold and things have shrunken down, everything's resting in cold. Typically your thermals are dropping because everything's freezing. And then as things warm up, when the sun comes up and the landscape starts to heat up, things rise. And the reverse effect happens when the sun starts to set again and things cool down. I think it's going to be whatever 
trend is starting to occur is going to be the direction that your scent travels and hot things rise, cold things sink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and how I think of that is uh, going back to the terrain and stuff and rising and setting suns, um, right? The lower you are, right? The cooler things are, um, especially if you got a ditch. So going back to Chris's example, if you got this ditch, it's, it's lower, it's typically kind of shaded, especially if it's a narrow ditch. Um, so I always think of that as right. It's pulling my thermals down. It's and your sense going to follow that, right? It's going to follow that current. Um, so that's why he was saying earlier that we use those for like access and different things, right? Because we can control where our scent goes in those areas. Now, as you get the sun coming up in some in certain areas and you uh, get things heating up, right? It, the thermals will tend to rise, especially if you're like on a hill or something. They'll they'll tend to rise, or even if you're not on a hill, right? I've I've played the thermals where, like, okay, if I'm expecting deer to move later in the day and it's fairly flat. Um, but if I have like a very light and variable wind and it might be iffy, I might play it in the morning um, where I know it's going to heat up quickly and anticipating my thermals are kind of going to help kind of lift my scent possibly over that deer. Um, now, light and variable can be tricky and that's kind of a risk versus reward thing, but that's in my mind, that's how I'll play that situation. Um, but in general, as things heat up, your, your thermals will rise. Um, and that that goes into if you're if you're hunting mornings versus evenings or afternoons, hunting different terrain. Um, you'll hear guys talk about, you know, uh, Shane Parker refers to like west facing hubs as morning hubs, um, because as the sun rises in the east, it's going to hit that east facing hub first, and the thermals are going to rise. But it's still shaded on the other side, so it's cooler. So your thermals are still dropping later into the morning. So they can work through that hub with the wind and their advantage, right? And as they go through the hub, if they happen to go up and over, let's say a saddle, as soon as they go to that other side, let's say it's east facing, right? They're going to have the thermals right in their face. So they're just moving with, you know, the scent hitting them in the face, right? So they're, they're, it's a very safe way of travel. Um, it's also the most consistent thing you could ever do. Wind yeah, isn't consistent. I'm going to... I'm going to go off on a little tangent. Jacob, you need to talk sure. to Shane Parker because you would have a nerd set with him. His, I wish I, I asked him to kind of join our group chat here and I completely <laughs> forgot that he, he scheduled a podcast with Rick. Um, and for, for our listeners, we're, we're just, you know, kind of getting ahead on content and stuff and, and just banking some episodes, but he's, he's doing an episode. Um, which I guess by the time this comes out, you're probably already here. So he did an episode with Rick on Anatomy of a Miss, but I invited him and I completely forgot it was him. He was, and he was, I confused him. He was like, Oh, am I talking with you guys or am I talking with Rick? I was like, son of a gun. Um, but anyway, he, he breaks down his trail cam data because he runs like 200, 300 trail cams, hundreds more than anyone I've ever heard of. Maybe, yeah. I don't know, I don't know what some of these private landowners do with like, thousand acres that have all the money but anyway he runs a lot but he breaks down the data he was uh, telling chris and i some of the data he was breaking down and he broke it down by um uh, bucks that he considers i can't remember if it's three years or older i, th- I want to say it's four or older um so he looks at that data and then the kind of like times and locations that he captures them 
and he was giving us some data on when those four-year-old deer were moving and like where at and like his data was really showing a thermal based movement um, which was really neat to see in the hills right we're talking about the hills because then for those that have bounced around and hunted different hill country i know jacob you've hunted some my experience is very limited but this became very evident when chris and i went scouting with jake bush down in kentucky um when we went scouting and when we went hunting um it kind of like took us aback because we weren't expecting it but your thermal based currents right are not always what the wind is saying um and even so like for example i was hunting a, a west facing hub and uh was it a west facing hub yes yes it was a west facing hub and we had a weird east wind or northeast or something like that so the exact opposite wind of what you should be hunting that hub right it, it should be coming sorry west facing hub on a west wind let me correct that um because it was early season so we have predominantly south and southwest west winds so really you should be hunting that on the opposite wind right coming the wind blowing out of the hub which would be coming from the east but i didn't have that i had the opposite but the thermals and the hub there is it was very narrow there was a ditch they were blowing out of the hub the entire day and with the amount of cover early season um it just stayed it stayed shaded it was cooler so there was a constant flow out of it uh, which kind of blew my mind i took a video of it and i actually hunted it on the quote-unquote wrong wind because the thermal the thermal current said no i should be actually hunting this i just can't hunt super high um but yeah you would ha you would absolutely nerd out with him jacob you should talk to him sometime yeah love that. he's a good dude when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, Rick here from the Mobile Hunter Podcast, and I'm here to tell you about one of our sponsors, Saddies LLC, Custom Ammunition and Gunworks. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads that have been putting down deer, waterfowl, and turkey all year long. The Saddies Fatty, the turkey load that we use, can stop a bird dead in its tracks. Check them out at saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com or on Facebook at Saddies LLC and tell them the Mobile Hunter Podcast sent you. Yep. You know what's interesting too that I learned um, hunting down there in the like river bottoms or whatever where we had just gigantic bodies of water in Alabama. So I was in, <clears throat> I was in between... How would I describe this? I was in a slough and on each side of me, there was terrain. Now the terrain, I could spit to the top of it. It wasn't anything crazy for the most part. And as I got up into the tippy top of the public piece there, well away from that water, I had the wind at my back. I was facing away from the water. And that air was pushing against my back the whole time. And that sun 
went down behind the trees and I felt it just suck right back out and the wind is now in my face and it was I almost equated to like a tide like it's coming in the whole time although the tides I think are ever every six hours or so but for the for the sake of the the argument here if like you will attention pond huh it's like a retention pond on the yeah, like, lake. You ever see that? It's, flows uh, up and then flows back out. Oh, wow. I haven't. Um, it was very interesting, though, because, again, you know, we've, we've got the tiniest bit of terrain, and it is funneling that wind. You know, that, that body of water is so much cooler as soon as that sun went down. I mean, everything just started sucking right into it. It was insane. And so the other thing that was was very interesting is that, you know, I kind of started to discover this in my mind talking to Jacob in our last podcast about how, you know, I think it. I think you were talking about how deer will, like, come to the edge of the cattails and mm-hmm. hang out. And I thought, well, I wonder if, you know, why, you know, why? And thought, man, I, I wonder if it's thermal based and there's winds carrying along the edge of the cattails. And and so as we're doing a podcast with Jacob Myers, me and Shane are kind of going back and forth. And he was like, you know, I, I found all the tracks and trails and everything were right at the edge of the water. And before I could get it out of my mouth, he's like, well, I, you know, I, I think it makes sense now. <laughs> you know, it's thermal based. They're they're moving because again, I, I've been saying this for a little while, and I've got some people that are very adamant to be against it. But at the end of the day, to me, it's just the on, only thing that makes sense because it's the only thing that offers a deer consistency. Wind does not offer consistency ever. All of us bitch about the wind every time we go out hunting so thermals i can predict a thermal and if i can predict a thermal i can doctor my access to you know pair with it and i can also which this next part i think is every bit is crucial when you start thinking and this is also why i believe that i'm correct in this way of thinking when i start using access because of thermals i then start thinking well if i'm doing this so is he and then that allows me to set up on deer and i've started to be right with that and and i'm noticing over and over and over that as soon as that thermal switch happens morning or evening doesn't matter i start seeing deer and especially in the evening when a lot of the deer i kill end up dying it's right at, I mean, literally like set a freaking stopwatch a few minutes after the thermal switch happens. Here he comes. So you guys can kind of take it from here. I'll shut up for a little bit. Josh, I almost have a question for you, unless you got something queued up, but. Oh, feel free to ask your question. I was just going to hit on the whole water thing uh, for a second. Cause we already kind of hit on. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. I, I can save it. Um, so we've already kind of covered uh, what a thermal is, uh, hot versus cold, right? Um, and kind of how terrain plays a role. Um, 
and sunlight and vegetation vegetation can play a role in east versus west hubs so i want to go and because chris you mentioned water uh, access and you were just mentioning water then so what about the water pulls the scent just just in its simplest terms so people have a good understanding of it well i i, I think it's the temperature and then i also believe that you know when you look at the way say a river flows well it flows that way because that's the only way it can flow unless it floods its banks and i think that if you were to take a huge like smoke bomb and set it at the bottom of the hill at like 11 o'clock in the morning you'd watch the smoke shoot straight up the hill and then if you were to set a couple fog machines near a ditch you would watch the fog you know just overwhelm the ditch and pour over all the sides and into the head and then flow down and then empty in to whatever that ditch is emptying into so but with that being said, I mean, I think it's temperature slightly terrain-based because water generally has some form of terrain around it. Um, but for the most part, I, I think it's temperature hands down. I, I mm -hmm. think as soon as that sun drops, for example, that river, that lake, whatever, especially this time of year when it's already super cold, it just overwhelms the air. And I mean, it's... It's the most amazing thing I've seen, honestly. Yeah, I agree. It's the temperature difference. And I just wanted to make that clear for all the listeners, um, especially when there's like a current, right? That's good because then you can, so you're sitting up along the water, <clears throat> thermals are dropping towards the, the, the current that's pulling everything, right? That current is pulling everything. So it'll drop down and kind of move with it. Now, I do think that could be different than, let's say, you have like a stagnant pond. Let's let's yeah. say, let's say it's really cold. Like I, I I haven't personally done this yet, um, but I know there are hunters that will do this. Let's say it's really cold out, and you they set up next to like a stagnant pond. Let's say it's in the morning, right, and things are warming up. Like you can see the steam rising off those ponds because it happens. Like if it's cold enough, it's a little warmer, right? So I've heard of guys setting up next to it will they'll play like that rising thermal off of mm -hmm. the water i don't know if you've seen that jacob being in I've, I've, like, yeah i've seen that and it's so much more rare for me i don't know if it's the nature of public land and then i don't have just a pond of sitting yeah. water all the time that yeah. doesn't have any ground flow or whatever um but i bet you that happens a lot more often on private land um i know the examples that dan has where he's killed on that usually we're on private land um but yeah, I would definitely say it's much more rare for such a a dense, large body of water to be warmer than the surrounding yeah. environment, aka a rising thermal, um, than it is for it to be colder. So in the case of, I think there's two things going on. There's a temperature difference and there's a momentum slash current. And so a lot of things, like you said, Chris, will almost always 99% of the time until literally, you know, hell or high water, literally, um, will be flowing in the same direction. And I think the air is continually sucked in that direction when it comes in proximity to that water source. I think that you can see the thermal effects extremely strong in like Western Wisconsin, spring fed trout streams. You can see that extremely strong pull um, getting pulled with the, the direction of that current and down to the creek. 
because it's colder in the environment on pretty much every day, sometimes including when there's snow on the ground, because uh, that groundwater is much colder than, than the air surrounding it. Um, but yeah, typically uh, sand is getting sucked into that water. Deer working in accordance to the edge of that water happens very, very frequently. And a lot of times around here, you actually see beds that are within swamps and happen to be on a little dry spot on a, a little bit of a risen bank on the edge of one of those streams. It allows them to in an environment that usually has a lot of high standing cover and doesn't allow for a lot of air flow. It allows them to sit there and actually gather information about what's upstream of them, regardless of what the wind's doing. You put things in a very good way. Like that's, <laughs> that's the best way ever to put it, gathering information. I mean, that's literally what they're doing. And it's so crazy to think like you're walking basically perpendicular to the wind along a stream, a lake, whatever. Right. And, and then in your situation an interior edge, you know, yeah. like they're, they're inside along the edge. It just, that's very, very difficult to beat. And I think that's why I struggle a lot to believe anything else is really going on because if a deer followed the wind, it walk in circles all day. And and what's very interesting or to in me, Flatland, I think, it, would end up, it would end up in Lake Michigan. Out here. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's also interesting to me is for the longest time, I was taught that deer traveled into the wind, quartered into the wind, etc. And ever since I started hunting, you know, I mean, I've always hunted hills, but since I started hunting them better and understanding thermals, every single buck that I've ever killed came into the situation wind to back. Yeah, it was, yeah if we, that, that came up in the workshop this weekend uh, and, extremely often, more than any other case, really. And and I think that, you know, there's there's a gentleman, Michael Yates, we, we talk about this stuff a lot and he doesn't agree with me on the thermal aspect, but, or, well, there's, there's certain things he doesn't agree with me on, but we'll say this. We, we do agree on the fact that um, when they are betting wind to back, we'll say, and they come in, they'll come in wind to back, uh, thermal to back, I guess I should put it, if they can see a decent distance, let's say 60 yards, 80 yards, something like that. If they're bedded in thicker cover, they might j-hook and come in with the wind to their nose and in some way or something but um i can't verify the other side of that but i can damn sure verify the wind to back thing <laughs> it's yeah. it's insane and if you look at your velvet deer out in the fields this year especially with the pathwoods you know where everybody says there's not enough terrain to funnel everything and you know all this different stuff Watch, watch what side of the woods the deer are feeding on. They're always on the downwind side of the woods. They can smell everything they can't see and see everything they can't smell. And that'll blow the shit out of your mind. Yeah. And, and I think an important thing too is the vast majority of the year in terms of deer travel is in relation to danger. Um, they're, they're motivated by not being in danger, hence the information <laughs> gathering. And so there's a lot of ways that they can deter that they can monitor danger um and cattails a lot of it is sound based 
for yeah. a lot of money because that's that's all they're left with. Um, the scent is what they prefer, but it's not always an option. So you think they have they use sound really really well in cattails and in dry hills. They use sight really well in the hills when the leaves are off. Um, using that topography to their advantage, they use scent all the time in every application. That's their number one sense. That's like sight to us. Um, they use everything they can. Um, but there's one case that I think that deer operate a little bit more with wind in mind. And that's when it comes to breeding and comes to finding does. And so when I find the extent, when I find a steep correlation between a buck's direction of travel and the wind direction, especially exiting bed, this is almost exclusively exiting bed, really. Um, it's because he's putting himself in the greatest opportunity to scent does possible. Yep. And there really is not a way for a deer to find does besides scent. It's not going to come running into any willy-nilly sound. They're right. not, they don't have that creative vision, really, to just say, oh, that's a doe in heat. The way that they verify does in heat by, is by scent. And that's why downwind of doe bedding areas is such a fantastic destination during the rut and that's why cruising down low and you see hub scrapes pop up like crazy and get used more in daylight during the rut because they're using those thermals to their advantage to do that and and the question i kind of had and i think um i think i was going to ask josh this because i know um josh you haven't maybe you weren't prepared to to really answer one right now but um <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff i feel like we've touched on um, but I was going to give you a scenario just so that listeners can kind of apply this in their situations. And so it's something that that goes through my mind all the time. But to set it up for you, let's say you're going into a hill country hunt. Um, let's say there's there's nothing abnormal about the temperature right now. But we'll say you're going into a pre-rut hunt. So around here in Wisconsin to be around October 25th to 30th, you're going to a pre-rut hunt, the terrain like the reliefs and the way that the thermals work and this kind of steepness of terrain sets up well for a thermal tunnel to be occurring at the top one third. So your classical bedding scenario in the hills, there's good relief in terrain there. You expect bucks to generally be bedded on that elevation line. And for those of you that don't know what a thermal tunnel is, it's an effect in the hills where the leeward wind, AKA the side that the, the side of a hill that the wind is not touching. So if you kind of picture like capital A, and you picture the wind coming from the left side of that A and jutting over the top of the right side, it's blasting over the right side of that hill. It's experiencing a vacancy in air. So it's turning back around, cutting back towards that side. Then you have a thermal coming up from the bottom where that sun is hitting. That's causing kind of a tunneling effect where those two airstreams meet. That's known as a pretty common place for mature bucks to bed because they can wind in multiple directions, kind of regardless of what goes on during the day. So, you're expecting bucks to bed on the upper one third of hills and on the leeward side in that thermal tunnel zone. How do you approach that hunt? Do you, what elevation do you approach from and how are you going to set up so that a deer isn't smelling you, but you're using that deer's incentive to find does to get a shot at him in the hunt in an afternoon. This is pre-rut time frame. Yep. Yep. So he's going to be looking for does coming into heat right now. Man, I feel like in that scenario, a very good thing to hone in on. I mean, during that time, kind of anywhere, is those scrapes. <laughs> um, so in the hills, right, you get those those hub scrapes. 
Um, mm-hmm. Just because, let's say they're they're betting on that topper, that upper one third, right? They can in the they're betting there in the afternoons, in the evenings, right? You're going to get that thermal switch. It's going to pull downhill. Um, yep. They could come down to that thermal hub and then check any other ridges that are dropping down there. They can go to that scrape and then see if anyone's been at that scrape, freshen it, do whatever, and then they can literally check all the other ridges around them if they want. Um, so how I would approach that is I would I would approach it from the bottom. Um, now, it would also probably depend on how well they can see as far as... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Let's say there's still enough leaves on that they're not seeing you. Because we're if we're just going to put it in thermal perspective here, so... Um, I, would still, I would still approach from the bottom um, yeah. and then get as close as I feel like I safely can to that scrape. Um, if there's a ditch, mm-hmm. then I would 100% use the ditch and stay in the ditch if I could for a couple different reasons. One, I know it's probably going to keep my scent there. And then two, if it's tall enough uh, or steep enough, I can hide most of my profile. Um, and if I can, if, if that ditch happens to go near that scrape or, or close enough to where I can shoot it, right, I'm going to probably just hop on a tree right on the edge of it if I can. Um, that's in my head. That is how I would approach that scenario. Um, just kind of keeping in mind, okay, the bedding in the upper one third in the evening, the, the most data they can gather mm-hmm. in the evening right, if I was doing an evening hunt, would be for them to come down, check that scrape, and then get in, in a, into a position where all those thermals drop down from those different ridges because then that's the one spot where they can gather the most information the quickest. Yeah, so so if that's like textbook, like fantastic answer, of course, and that's kind of what I was expecting you to give, and I know you you break these things down in that way, but basically if you look at all the things that we talked about, like you were considering a ditch, you were considering how your setup is influenced there. And and I think this is how all the ways that you can use just air currents and thermals in general. You're first you're thinking, okay, where is the deer going to be? Given this time of year, these deer want to gather as much information about other deer using their senses. So we already know based on the terrain, what elevation line we think he's going to be at. And you you perfectly associated a terrain feature like a let's say a piece of sign like a scrape and them wanting to gather information using that thermal that's going to drop every single day. So you're coming in as those thermals start to drop or you're coming in after those thermals have been done rising up to that deer, you're, you're in a situation that he's incentivized to come down to you already. You're accessing such that your scent is not going to go to him. Although you're giving him the advantage, you're giving him the advantage of being able to smell what he's, what he wants. You're just dodging his ability to to kind of catch you, let's say, with that thermal. Mm-hmm. And and I just think that's great. I think that's something that a lot of people take for granted is that you need to not just be aware of what thermals are, but use them in every aspect of your setup. It's why is the deer going to be there? How is he using the thermals? How can I allow him to use those thermals and then get away and maybe use them to my own advantage at the same time? Um with getting a setup on that deer. And I think that's like a, I knew you were going to do really well at that, which is why I wanted to ask you it. Comprehensively pull that all together. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to throw it back to, so you asked me that question. I'm going to ask Chris a question and dive deeper into that scenario. 
<laughs> see what his answer is. Now it's an interrogation. Be, yeah. Before before you do that, though, I do want to say that what Jacob was hitting on there at the end was basically kind of that off wind scenario. Mm-hmm. Like essentially, you're giving the deer the wind. You're using you're giving him the wind when really we're saying thermals, right? So um, he has a stream of air. We'll call it you know a thermal wind, whatever to have an advantage but you also have the advantage but at a certain point as he comes in close enough you'd better get the shot off because mm-hmm. he's not just going to go anywhere he wants and not catch your wind if that makes sense and i think that's when you get super efficient and, and just clever oh. in general, is when you're giving him that advantage and yeah you're relying on an extra incentive it's like you're giving a bait you know like he doesn't know your presence at all yeah that's- what needs to happen but you're literally increasing your odds by giving him an advantage and then like you said just being just enough off being able to slip in a shot right before that happens i think that's i mean the situations where i've had success have almost always fit under that category yeah and don higgins uh not the same kind of hunter as we are one of the best things that i've ever heard though is asking a deer to come in without the advantage of the wind is asking him to willingly commit suicide. That's a fantastic quote. That is like the gospel of the Lord. It's like all the times I sat with the wind in my face, and I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. The wind's in my face. I got the wind. Well, yeah, stupid. Like, he can't can't smell where you want him to come from. Like, give him a chance. So, but I was also in bad setups anyway. So anyway, (laughs) now that we covered that, Josh, interrogate Josh. Okay, so to dive deeper in this scenario and to kind of put it in terms of application of how to use it. So let's say we have the same scenario that Jacob played out uh, along with the answer I gave, right? You're going to come through the bottom. Let's say there is a ditch. You're going to use the ditch. Um, Let's say you get to a point um, where you are able to shoot that scrape. Um, Let's see. Let's say you have a, I'm going to add to this and then then we'll dive into some details. Um, let's say you have a fairly strong wind that is not coming directly out of the hub. Let's say it's a little bit cross. So like imagine like you have a hub running north and south and the winds like uh, east west type deal. Um, and it's a little bit wider. So that's going to add some swirls to it. How high are you going to hunt? Because I, I think thermals and currents help me determine like a height at which I need to hunt, especially in the hills. Like uh, the, the example I think of was last season when we were hunting in Kentucky. I could, I, I could only hunt at a certain height or I screwed myself. So I want to, I want to hear your answer. So, well, honestly, I feel like I would do something completely different in that situation. I feel like, so do I know where this buck's bedded? Yeah, let's say you you know where he's bedded. He's bedded on that upper upper third. Uh, you're expecting him to come down. Uh, to with, the secondary ridge, though, right? Like, I know which secondary ridge. Yeah, is you up. know where he's bedded, and you're expecting him to come down to the And street. I'm not hot to the bottom. All I want to know is how high are you going to hunt in that scenario? Um. um pushing as close as I can to the deer. Yes, but and 
Uh, go on how the height you're in a tree. How high are you? I mean, in, in my mind, I'm trying to picture all the the <laughs> details that you just. I, 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 I know this know isn't exactly way. how your mind works. So. I don't. I don't know what way. <laughs> it's like being in the woods with Jake, and he's like, "Let's say you have a west facing hug and hub at 92 degrees," and like, "Oh my God, I'm lost, Jake." Um, honestly. I mean, I'm still, I think you want me to say that I would get way up high, but honestly, I'm still going to be way down low okay. and I'm going to be below the buck. I'm going to cut that scrape off if I know where a secondary ridge is. Um, the thing, I'm going to try to make things as tight and as um, shaded as I can if I have that option. If I don't have that option, then I'm going to try to get up higher, but I feel like if I'm going to push closer, which is exactly what I do, because I feel like then you have the ability to kind of control things a little bit. But again, it's all like it's very difficult without like an exact picture of a hub for me. My mind doesn't work that way. <laughs> I don't see what's going on in your mind, but like, what would you like me to say? <laughs> no, you you hit on it. I, I knew you might struggle with that a little bit because I know your mind doesn't quite work like that. That's why uh, he asked me, and not the engineer who took thermodynamics. Uh, no, but yeah, if if you have the option to get in closer for more control, that's definitely a good way to do it, uh, especially using the hill to your advantage when those thermals kick in. Um, but I would, I, I wasn't expecting you to say hunt higher. I would hunt low. Okay. To try and. Like that ditch I gave, I would try and hunt low near the ditch because, and what the picture I was trying to paint was like, you have a fairly strong wind that's going across the hub. So you're going to get, get some swirls. Yeah. You can try and mitigate that if you're hunting right along the ditch and hunting lower. Sure. Um, to where you're, you know, to have the most. I mean, at that point, yes. you could stand in the ditch if, if need. You could. If it was, I don't know how tall this ditch is. Though. Yeah. If it was tall enough, you could. But yeah, can I, I would hunt. Picture of the ditch. I would hunt low. What? Do I have a picture? Can you get a picture of the ditch? I was a picture book guy. Can everybody tell that? <laughs> I read the picture books a lot. Yeah. yeah. So that was the scenario I was trying to uh, just portray there. I would I would hunt low there. Um, if we made it in general, let's just say in general, like if you have a sucky wind, you're dealing with topography, and it's just swirling like crazy, but you have to hunt it. Like you have to hunt it. Um, generally the wind's going to get slower as the sun sets, as it gets darker out. I would just stay as low as freaking possible. Yeah. Ethan Eskew this year literally laid on the ground to try and keep his thermals from going out of whack. Like, I mean, I, I'm picturing in Western Wisconsin drainages that used to have water in them that haven't for years that are just rock bottom. And if you stood up, your eyes would, your chin would kind of be at level with the top of it. Okay. Um, I would literally lay in that until I felt those thermal switcher that wind calm down. But yeah. to some extent, like I would have to get available, like I'd have to get ready for a shot. Like I'd have to at least put myself in position to get a shot. Um, and, and again, praying those thermals take over, you know, let's say you got to, you can factor it to maybe your wind that is commonly swirling in this direction. I'm going to try to make it go into a blowdown or some barrier that I don't think the deer is going to walk into or around, I think is important. And then, just it's okay to fail like really like you may bust the deer out of there but like there's so many guys that just say like 
I would never hunt a hub because your wind swirls too much. And, you know, I would get the buck to come in there every single time, but you know, it would just bust me. And then I'd never see him again. One, the, the fact it's very rare that you bust a deer and it just absolutely relocates even in the highest of pressure properties, especially because some of those deer have found the older mature bucks have found the ways that they survive and they like to stick to the ways that they survive. Yes. Um, it's just well, everyone, every animal kind of gets habitual as it gets old. It's not really something specific to a deer even, but again, deer personalities. Um, but, but just the fact is, it's just not like, you know, it's, it's very okay to fail and failing will teach you more than anything else will. So it, it's better to take the risk and fail in my opinion, given that you've scouted and this isn't the only deer you know about in existence um, and, and learn from it and then analyze it in every way possible and move on from there really and and honestly like let's let's be real the odds that that buck even comes down to you or even was where you planned on it being is probably pretty freaking low i mean like if you're in my opinion if nine times or if nine times out of ten you're failing and every tenth hunt you have the exact buck you're after does the exact thing you wanted it to you're in my hall of fame for public land hunting so like you know it's better to to try and fail and learn than to not try at all, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So you can do a whole bunch of stuff to try and optimize, but at the end of the day, you're going to take the risk and it's, it's going to pay off or you're going to learn. So I definitely agree. This has been good. It has. I would like to hit on, I know it's what, how long are we going on here? I don't care. How, we, Rick's, Rick's in bed already. He can't, uh, he, on our message he can't shut me up. <laughs> so I would like to hit on another topic uh, just to differentiate and help people with like application. We've kind of hit on it a little bit uh, and it was kind of where I was leading into with that scenario and that question I asked you, Chris, um, but wind. So most people are familiar with wind over thermals, right? Um, so <clears throat> where does wind play a factor into the thermals? right uh there there is a point in which wind can overpower your thermals um so let's i'd like to dive in that a little bit so people have somewhat of an understanding because there are scenarios scenarios where i will use um i guess uh well combination of wind and thermals uh and instead of just thermals yeah um well We'll, we'll start from the bottom and work our way up, I guess. So like our spot we hunted in Kentucky, we kind of started, that's actually what got me thinking about thermal base movement because there was never any damn wind. Like I, I'd check the wind all the time and, oh, light and variable, light and variable. And I'm like, well, I'm not going there. Well, I'm not going there. Well, I'm not going there. And then all of a sudden things started clicking. Well, you start getting into places in southern Ohio, and for whatever reason, same Appalachian mountain range, but we're getting into, you know, drainage ditches or gullies or, um, you know, hubs, and down low, you know, you're, you're fine, and as soon as you get up on that ridgetop, you'd think the wind was like 15 or 20 miles an hour. And a lot of times I think a lot of that is thermals 
but I think there's really good ways. You know, if you're hunting that upper third, you can use that to your advantage big time where it's just freaking ripping over the top of that ridge and it can push your scent, you know, out away from the deer, depending on where you are, which I kind of think you got to kind of, in those situations, you got to be coming in from the side as well, a little bit, not straight up or down. So anyway. Yeah, I... <clears throat> I, I still pay attention to the wind, even though mo more often than not, it's still um, kind of doing things based off of thermals. Uh, but let's say I'm in more flatter terrain or gradual terrain where a pull or push from the thermals isn't as strong. Then I, I take that into the wind into effect more, especially if it's, you know, Jacob, I don't know what you've heard. I've heard people say, like, once it gets to, like, that like six to eight mile an hour, probably around eight mile an hour range, it kind of overpowers some some of the thermals. Again, this would probably depend on like the steepness of your terrain and and mm -hmm. and that proximity edge, all that. Yeah, yeah all that. But um, <clears throat> I definitely kind of keep an eye on that. And then, like I said earlier, if it's light and variable, um, let's say I have a questionable quote unquote wind, um, and the wind's light and variable. But, you know, your weather app says it's blowing kind of to where you're expecting this deer coming from. But really, when you're out there, it's kind of going every which way. So in that scenario, what I what I do, especially if I'm hunting, let's say if I was hunting in the morning, I would rely on thermals to overpower the light and variable. Let's say it's like one to two, three, maybe three miles an hour. Uh, and I would rely on those rising thermals in the morning and try and hunt high. Uh, I would try and get up high to help uh, with that thermal rise as the sun is, you know, kind of warming everything up. And then kind of vice versa. In the evenings, I would probably hunt low near a ditch or something to really try and pull everything down. Um, now, if it's fairly flat or very gradual, let's say, um, let's say you got a gradual hill and you got a pretty steady wind, let's say it's like 10, let's say it's like 12 miles an hour. Um, now I might get, let's say I have some terrain where maybe the deer are coming below me, I might try and get up high again, even if it's, let's say the wind's pretty steady well until, let's say it's well into the evening steady, I might still get up high where, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you got a little hill, maybe I'll get down, hung a little lower, play the thermal pull, let's say that wind's pretty steady, I may go high instead and anticipate mm -hmm. that wind's going to kind of carry my scent over those deer if I'm close enough to whatever trail they're coming on. So um, that's that's just a few scenarios where I, where I do pay attention to wind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say like that, that uh, I would even go 8 to 10 as far as that, just to give a little bit of room for error as far as people, mm -hmm. like, you know, I don't want you to play too close. Um, eight to 10 as far as overpowering thermals and flat land again depends on how close you are to the water if you're right on the water's edge maybe it has a if you're on the water's edge and it's sea of cattails and you're on an elevated piece of land and there's a steep drop in temperature during the night you're probably going to have your thermal do a bit of damage to you but again if the higher you are the further you are away from that vacuum effect created by that kind of void um the less that that's going to have kind of a, a play on you um, I think that a little more residual air currents kind of are occurring in the hills as the sun sets, where sometimes it gets absolutely dead calm in the marshes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes there's nothing to stop the wind in the marshes. So, you know, it really depends on how much you trust your forecast looking forward to and how you're going to play that. Um, some you touched on as far as hunting, even though the wind is just not in your favor uh, on what the, the weatherman's showing. I've done that a few times this year in very critical situations and I've gotten away with it. And I think something that is really important to that, and I would say really every single setup, but something that's a little more consistent in flatland because the air current in one place, uh, given that you're not around water, let's say given you're not around water where you're currently standing and the place that you're going to is not miles and miles away and also not around water. So it's like analogous, similar. Um, Something I found that is very helpful is in Onyx or whatever app you use, point to the extreme of the wind direction. So like, you know, let's say it's an east wind. Um, it's going to blow one extreme kind of southwest. It's blowing to the southwest to one extreme. And I'm going to mark a straight line facing that direction, whatever the most extreme southwest wind gust I had at all. And then it's going to blow one little more extreme on the northwest side. So you're kind of going to get that cone that you're protruding just based on what the wind is likely to shift to. So I'll get close to my spot and I'll stand there for a good five minutes and I'll let that wind just go crazy. I'll let it blow whatever direction it wants to. And I'll measure what the absolute worst case scenarios are probably going to be like for my hunt. Um, And then I'll plan for that error. So yeah, it should be a directly east blowing to west wind. Um, And I'm, while many guys may set up just so that perfect lateral line is not hitting the deer thereafter or the its route coming in i want to play it so that my complete chance of error is dodged so especially when you know you're trying to do something like say this is going to overpower the thermals um and you don't really know how they're going to take an effect and maybe you're not as experienced with it it's good to be dropping milkweed see what the range of that milkweed is and then visualize that when you're going into your spot okay what tree am i going to pick so that both where he's at right now and where he's going to travel to before i kill him is not in that cone of error we'll call it that's good stuff well do you uh sorry chris i don't you didn't do you use uh wind speeds much anymore as far as like if if they'll overpower thermals or yeah yeah yeah, definitely well I don't know if Chris answered that. Um, so I, I've got some weird nerdy beliefs with that. So <laughs> if I prefer early season deer that are not really sexually driven yet, and I find that I have the best odds of getting a deer up from his bed and far enough away from it for me to kill him, when we're at, at the very least like sub nine, 10 miles an hour, I really like that three to seven mile per hour range. Cause I generally, it's not all the time, but generally, you know, you're going to get that wind to die down the last 45 minutes or so. And that, you know, the sun goes down, wind dies down, thermal switch happens, buck stands up out of his bed, travels, you know, 60 to 80 yards or whatever takes an arrow to the face so not really the face but you get it um i find that it's significantly different once you get to the end of october and into november because at that point he's a little more lenient 
with what he's doing. And I think that also he has other things on his mind. He's not just going to go like mosey down to a, a native grass field or something and eat. He can do that anytime. Now he's he has anxiety about losing one of his does that he could go breed or something. So it triggers things a little differently. And he might use that, you know, use a wind differently, kind of like what you were saying. You know, though they're always on the downwind side of something, you know, thicket, leeward edge, you name it. So I hope that sufficiently answered what you wanted to know. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of it's scenario dependent. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like that buck I killed in 22 uh, in Kentucky. Um, <clears throat> I set up on. Uh, we had a northeast wind, and I set up to where if something was traveling, it would either be quartering into the wind or quartering, uh, like it would come come over its you know hind end, kind of quartering yeah. away from it um, on an edge. And that buck I shot was quartering into the wind, but he was in a place where it was very loud because it was next to a road, and it was super thick, so he had to rely on his scent and use the it was a, it was a fairly steady breeze uh, we yeah. were kind of on top of this ridge in a thicket so that was why i set up there was because it was a steady wind and i knew those deer pretty much had to rely on their nose right so that was a scenario where i was i wasn't too concerned with thermals more so wind speed and direction there so that rut stuff makes me anxious i'm yeah. still anxious about the deer that i already killed well, and to preface that, that deer I killed in 22 was in September 16th. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. Rut, rut, I don't know. I still like the rut. It's fun. I like it too. I like the I last just, week of October. I've, yeah. Mm-hmm. I find it tough to be, I don't know, with with the way I, that's the part of me that really has to like get out of my comfort zone. And I feel like I did fine this year and you, everything. I, felt, I was proud of you. I, I felt like... um. I kind of felt like I was right. Obviously, I killed a deer, right? But at the same rate, it's just not as controlled as that early season. Man, that early season is starting to become more and more dialed. And uh, it's just more predictable, in my opinion. And once you start, and there's so many different reasons that I believe that it becomes unpredictable. Once you get to the end, very end of October and into November. But I don't, Chris. I, I don't know if I we, agree. We have a whole other podcast brewing right here because <laughs> yeah, I have some wild theories on how it gets. Oh, I I'm gonna. <laughs> I think I'm gonna agree with Jacob here because I kind of disagree with you, Chris. I really, really, I think they handcuff themselves in some ways. Yes. But I don't want to. Oh, yeah. We're gonna have a whole. Tester viewers I've, I've had this thought brewing in my mind. I really want to talk to Jake Bush because he's still. Everyone, for the most part, I believe I actually heard like Mark Kenyon and stuff talk about this, about targeting a specific deer during, quote unquote, the worst time of year to target a specific buck. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it varies by personality. And like Jacob said, they can't handcuff themselves. But I really want to talk to Jake Bush because he still targeted one, his one target buck during the rut, uh, which means there still had to be some predictability there. Um, So... Another podcast for another time. I think that'll, that'll be another good nerd sesh. We'll get we'll get Jake to join us. We'll have three J's and a Chris. Yeah, we'll have <laughs> Jacob squared. Jacob squared. Um, 
Yeah. More often. It, it, yeah. We, uh, I definitely felt like I was outside the box with my thinking with that deer. It was definitely like very different for me. I didn't like it. I was proud of you because you hate pressure and you adapted to it. Those mother. Mm. Oh, so pissed off, man. You freaking bust your ass to get away from people and they just come trouncing in from every which direction and screwing all my shit up. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So, what was interesting, which we've talked about a thousand times, but I don't know if I've technically mentioned it on a podcast. I, I kind of thought about the pressure similar to the way that I think about thermals. I basically drew lines in my mind and on the map like, okay, they come from here. Here's where all their cameras are. Here's where their presets are. So this is probably where they're going. All right, how could I avoid you? And I spent my time avoiding their cameras because I don't want the locals to be like, and then somebody post about it or tell their buddies or whatever and then before you know it you're screwed so i was like all right i need to start avoiding these cameras don't get caught on cameras i'd already been caught on one back in scouting season and uh it was funny because one day i was like wonder how much these deer are doing this and then the one dude messages me and was like, Hey, sorry about the screw up on opening day. I'm going to throw you a bone about a deer. I know you don't know anything about. And he sends me the buck I've been hunting for like weeks now. And he said they had like two videos of him in six months. And I was like, well, hell I'm getting multiple every week. Uh, all right. Oh my God. He's avoiding their cameras like crazy. And then I just started drawing lines, ruling stuff out. I think similarly to, I, I think Dan's stacking method, like go purposely pressure this area, you know, hope that he shows up, but if he doesn't, that's fine. Now you've put your scent in there, your ground scent and everything and pressured it. Now move to the next area and just start checking them off. And I think it was like the fourth spot. Boom. There he came. I couldn't believe it. Anyway. This has been really fun. I like the nerdy stuff. The nerdy. I feel like there's some good learning points. So, how long have we been going for a while? Uh, let's check the time. Seventeen minutes. <laughs> oh, uh, only an hour and forty-one. Ah, uh, yeah. Rick, oh, Rick's only going to cry a little bit. Rick, well, he won't have any editing really to do, though. We'll just have sure. to chop the beginning off, yeah. and Rick's he didn't have to sit through this boring. Yeah. I love deer hunting podcast. The analytics say if it's more than an hour, they don't listen. <laughs> He's going to murder you now. <laughs> We're never going to find Josh. Uh, he'll, he'll be pastrami next week. So, we'll do use we, the to find where he's at. <laughs> do we want to round this out just by like conclusions on thermals and whatever else we think? Yeah. Any thoughts? What thoughts do you have? No. Um, I hope people were able to follow this. To some people, I think it's pretty complex. To others, they're probably sitting here like these idiots. Don't kill deer on their first sit. What are they doing? Uh, <laughs> that being said, I hope this helps a couple people. 
just not the guys that are trying to hunt in my spot. But no. <laughs> uh, honestly, if anybody has any questions, throw them up, you know, on the Mobile Hunter Facebook group or Fueled by the Outdoors, email us, uh, type them in on the podcast platforms, whatever you want to do, message me, Josh, or Jacob personally, um, however you want to go about that. And, and we'll try to help as best we can. What I can say is that since I started paying attention to the thermals uh, quite a bit and understanding how they work in each area, you know, at each time with, you know, not just, uh, I, I guess, basically how they work not only um, at each time of day, but how they differ from, say, a day that's very, very sunny and warm versus a cloudy overcast day and so on. Um, it has tremendously helped my hunting experience in general. I see more deer in general, but I get more opportunities at the bigger, uh, better age class deer. So I hope it helps somebody. Jacob? I would say um, just keep in mind how you can use thermals. Um, keep in mind how deer may be using them and how you want to pay attention to them to both give the deer the advantage and give yourself the advantage. Um, they are something that will always occur no matter what terrain you're in. Um, it may occur to a greater extent when you involve topography and greater changes in temperature, things like streams and ditches and stuff like that. So keep in mind how your terrain sets up and how that will make it thermals either a greater or a lesser influence and uh, just use it as another thing to kind of stack the odds in your favor. It's something that you can keep in mind just like you would any bit of sign or camera intel or something like that. Uh, just incorporate it in your game and it's something that will certainly help you a lot. What do you recommend that people do if they can't get the thermals in their favor? So if are you saying if they have to hunt and the thermals will not be benefiting them or if they can't figure out the thermals? Like if personally, they, if, if, they, if they can't benefit due to the thermals and, and or the deer can't benefit as well, one or both. Um, I, I guess that's a tough question. I feel like there's always an opportunity to, to use it to your advantage in theory may not always like may not necessarily work. I mean, the, the most successful hunters are wrong the majority of the time. Um, but um, I would just say keep striving for it, really. I mean, if if you absolutely have no idea how thermals work, um, I would say keep trying to figure out how they work. Um, use the way that you see current flow in water and things like that. Use a lot of milkweed. See if you can get familiar with it, even if it has to happen in the off season for you. Just try to do it using that. And if there's absolutely no hope for you in the end of the day, um, pay attention to the wind current. Pay attention to how the wind is influenced by the terrain around you at the very least. And uh, just keep working to get there. I mean, it's not something that everyone gets right away. It took me years to get some level of understanding. And uh, it really takes a lot of infield practice really to get it down. And then you'll start to see, I, I would say a big thing that I, I guess I didn't realize right away is when you see deer moving, when you see bucks in particular moving, note how they are using it. Note the times you get busted, what's really going on, the times that you see a deer doing something way, you know, out of the norm, 
what that deer might be doing. Kind of develop something to back your observation. And and instead of just being there and being like, wow, cool, that's a deer, try to break down like what that deer's doing and, and put a little bit of reasoning behind it. Cause in reality, even if you're wrong, that that situation is going to show up again. So even if you're the the reason that deer is doing it is wrong, the reason you develop is wrong there's a great chance the deer does the same thing given the same conditions again. So even if you can't develop some kind of logic behind it, like let's say, you know, you think this deer is traveling in this direction because there's food in that direction, but it's really because there's a doe in that direction. Well, the deer is still traveling in that direction. So you set yourself up for success and that way you stand to succeed. So AKA develop thermals based on experience through deer. If you can't do it through your own. Yep. Solid. Josh? I'm going to go kind of um, go off of what Jacob just said. I'm going to uh, encourage everyone to go out and fail. Right? Yeah. The, the, the people that you see that are succeeding or finding consistent success, they're just, they're failing more than others, right? There's a lot to take away from failures. There's a lot to take away from your success. But really, like if you if you fail and then most of the time, lots of people will kind of analyze and just really learn from it. So I'm going to encourage people to go out, fail, take milkweed with you anytime you're hanging cameras, anytime you're scouting, anytime you're hunting, take it out with you, pop that milkweed, pop it at different times of the day on different winds, right? Different terrain, put yourself in different scenarios so that way um, you're able to learn how wind and thermals will play in in different situations um, that way when you stumble upon let's say you're on a new piece of ground right you're able to identify the situations quicker and like if you're taking note of when bucks are uh, like using certain train features or using moving at certain times of the day right and you're understanding the the wind currents and the thermals and that right if you can apply that to different areas like oh i saw this book do this here um there's a good chance i'll do it in this scenario because it sets up very similar so that's how that's how a lot of learning takes place like jacob said like this stuff takes a long time to kind of understand and we we all three of us will sit here and say like we're still learning yeah we're still learning figuring out the application becoming more efficient with it um so just just go out, put yourself in these scenarios, test things out. That way, you know, down the road, you're just going to get better and better at it. Yeah, like the it. day we stop learning is the day we stop succeeding. Yep. You know, That's right. It's really what it's about. It's about getting better every single day. And coincidentally, when you focus on that journey of getting better, you tend to find the success anyways. Yeah. We have so many good quotes in this. Yeah. I think <laughs> a lot of people have anxiety about failing. Like, it literally scares them from going into the woods. Hence the posts you see about, I don't want your spots or your pins, but can you tell me exactly where to hunt and how to do it? I want you yep. to go out and be the brave one to walk around and find everything. And then, you know, I'll just come in and, like, clean up. I, I, I would say failing is is not just, like, failing is not just a part of eventually achieving your goals, I would say it's absolutely necessary to achieve yeah. your goals. If if you don't know how to fail and how to take it and how to learn, then you're never going to get better. That's just a fact. Yeah. You're hitting me right in the 
right in the feels right now. Hemophilios. <laughs> oh, hemophilios. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, guys, we appreciate you sticking around for all four of you that are probably maybe left right now. Um, but hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, let us know your thoughts via email, in the groups, whatever you want. Um, if somehow you are a listener that doesn't know about our groups, we have a group called The Mobile Hunter in, on Facebook. We also have Fueled by the Outdoors uh, podcast page, and then, uh, or excuse me, Fueled by the Outdoors page used to be our podcast page. Um, and then uh, we have The Mobile Hunters Expo you need to try out. We're going to have some phenomenal guest speakers. So check us out at themobilehuntersexpo.com. But thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Mobile Hunter Podcast. I've been your host, Chris Leppert, also hosted by Josh Luck. And tonight we were joined by Jacob Sklenner. Guys, have a good one. And thanks. See ya. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. The best way you can support the podcast is by sharing online and with your buddies at Deer Camp. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and leave us a five-star review.